Hi, it's Brian. Welcome back to Heart to Heart. On today's episode, we spoke with Ken Sanzel, showrunner and executive producer for primetime network TV hits such as CBS's Blue Bloods, where he worked with the likes of Tom Selleck and a slew of household name actors. Having worn various hats in his life, from serving as a transit cop in New York City to becoming a noted screenwriter, showrunner, and director, Ken has a treasure trove of experiences and stories. Ken's journey from the NYPD to the heart of Hollywood, coupled with his apparent knack for storytelling, offers valuable insights into how power dynamics work in the entertainment industry. Before you listen, you've got to grab our backstage pass. It's packed with Ken's top tips, insider advice, and additional resources that will give you a competitive edge. You can grab the backstage pass by going to podcastbackstagepass.com. How did you meet Felix? Uh, drinking. Cannons. Cannons, yeah. So Cannons, th- so Ken, this, this story is so inspiring because I was telling Brian how we met. So first of all, you were one of my absolute favorite customers with Felix, the two of you would come in. I was a bartender uh, trying to pursue an acting career. And uh, the two of you would come in and it was just like the party started. And you would sit at the end. For, was it you or Felix that had to sit at the end of the bar? That was probably Felix. I mean, yeah, probably Felix, yeah. Okay, so you had to sit at the one end of the bar. And, and I don't know if this goes on anymore in America at all. How many bars do you know? Probably in like small town USA where... I literally set the bottle of Glen Fittage, I believe. Knock and do. It was knock and do. Okay. Set knock it down. and do on the rocks with a Coke back. I remember that. That's right. I set it down right in front of you guys. So this way I wouldn't have to pull it out every time. And between the two of you, you could handle so much and it didn't even yeah. seem to affect you guys. Yeah, I don't do that anymore. That no, way. I know. But what's interesting, <laughs> Ken, so I'm a bartender and I'm serving you guys and it seems like every other minute, I got to refill your glasses. And then you start talking about like, you would say like, uh, and by the way, everybody, so Ken at that time was a, a New York City cop, you know, transit cop, right? Or, or a detective? Well, I was, a, I was a transit cop. And then after the, I guess I was a detective in transit. And then after the merge, briefly, I was still a detective before I left. Yeah. Now, now do you remember, Ken, when you invited me one night to come with you? I don't know if you remember this, but I got to go and meet you in around 42nd Street in the subway area. Yeah, the port. And I came to your office. Yeah, yeah I, came, I came to the, I never, as a, as a New York City subway participant or a rider, <laughs> I never noticed that like hidden door with all the, room. Yeah. as my friend Doug Moyer, who was a cop said, oh, coppers would hang out. And then, you know, I met you there. And then you and I walked, walked your, uh, whatever you want to call it, walked the beat like that night till, till like four and five in the morning. Yeah, yeah. You had some kind of like life back then. That was fun. It was fun. Yeah. So what I what I was enthralled with is you'd sit at the end of the bar with Felix all night, and then and then you'd always be like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go home now and write." I'm like, <laughs> it was like two or three in the I don't know what what time in the morning, but you you would go home and write, and I wanted to ask you. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? When did you feel like, were you like eight years old? You said like, one day I want to be a writer. How did the writing happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wrote from when I was a kid and I even, I tried to write screenplays and TV scripts back when I was probably, you know, 12 or 13 or something. And I remember I wrote a a spec script for Vegas, the Robert Urich show. And I had had a rejection letter from Burton Armas, who I guess was the showrunner. 
And then I, you know, I go into writing fiction from time to time. You know, I kind of went back and forth. And actually, it was it was when I started drinking with Felix. He he uh, he knew Linda Fiorentino, and yep, she hung out there. Yeah, he had these sort of tenuous connections into into Hollywood, and that kind of inspired me to get back into trying to write a screenplay again. And I wrote I wrote a really bad transit cop screenplay that didn't that didn't do anything. I have to confess, Ken, when I was a bartender and you and Felix were over there having on your seems like ninth or tenth whiskey, I'd be like, this guy says he's gonna go home and write and he's gonna write a screenplay. Good luck to him. Yeah. And and then I run into Betsy years later and she's like, oh no, Ken's Ken's going on to do this. And and, and no, I actually uh, the replacement killers came out. That was a big deal. Everybody was like talking about it. So that was, was that your first screenplay? That wasn't the first one I sold. That was the first one that got made. Yeah. What's her name? She. That's when she was like really. I can't believe I'm saying what's her oh, name. Uh, Mira Servino. Yeah. Mira Servino. She was really. She was really big at that yeah. time. I just was curious to hear your story, like how the transition happened from going from a New York City police officer to like all of a sudden saying, you know what, I'm leaving. And now I'm making my living as a writer slash showrunner. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't brave enough to to do that. Uh, what happened was uh, I met I met my my wife and uh, we opened this gallery and that was sort of a you know it was a side gig for me and she was running it full time and I would I'd go in you know I go in and help out at the gallery you know when I was not working and we had a computer you know so that was. I guess I'd had a computer before looking back, but we had a brand new computer for the gallery and I started writing again. I wrote a script. I wrote another script. I had a, my childhood best friend, uh, Steve Cohen, had gone to film school, gone to Columbia Film School, and then he'd gone out to LA and, and uh, gone to work for, for a company called Savoy Pictures. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to remember the whole timeline, but I remember I wrote this one script he really liked called Rewind, which has never gotten made or even sold. His boss didn't like it at Savoy. I think he showed it to someone at Savoy. He showed it to an agent of William Morris who kind of flirted with, with signing me, but then didn't. While that was going on, you know, I, I was writing more stuff and I wrote a script called Crosstown Riders. Also has never gotten made, but uh, he showed that to his boss at Savoy and his boss bought it. And then they they gave me a rewrite job on a on Ghost Rider, which you know at that time was with them. You know, passed through a million hands on its way to getting made. And then they bought three other scripts from me. And when I got the three picture deal, was around the same time as a cop as a detective. They were transferring me to the Bronx, and so then I started to do the math of well, I have the money to take a chance, and you know, commuting from. I think we were living on the Upper East Side at the time. So to go from the Upper East Side to the Bronx and then back down to Soho, I was like, you know, it was time It was time to move on. Plus, I, I loved being a road cop, but I never really loved being a detective. Oh. And I found it, I found it really bureaucratic. A lot of paperwork. Yeah, I come out of like working in decoys and stakeout squads and that stuff was fun. But yeah, I, I never was temperamentally great at being a detective, which uh, I remember much later on, I met Sonny Grasso, you know, who's, uh, he was played by Roy Scheider in The French Connection. He's the not Popeye Doyle. And Sonny Grasso went on to 
build a small empire of TV movies and, and shows and stuff. And they were doing a pilot based on his life and kind of the real French connection. And I met with him about, I guess by then I was a showrunner. I probably met with him about showrunning. And when I told him that I'd never really enjoyed being a detective, that was the end. I was dead to him. He couldn't understand <laughs> any cop, cop who didn't love being a detective. So. It's just such an inspiring story, but it, should, it shouldn't be. It was. It's a lot of luck. What's your wife's name? Laura. Okay, so Laura. She had to be a huge player in like uh, turning your life around to like. Uh... Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It was. It was in a lot of ways. Yes, uh, you know, uh, temperamentally, and and you know, in terms of your life, it, you know, it changed things. And I wasn't a guy sitting in a bar four or five nights <laughs> a week anymore. <laughs> So, so what I want to ask you is, how did uh, Blue Bloods come into play? Oh, Blue Bloods! Uh, I was on an overall at uh, at CBS. I'd finished numbers. Numbers had gotten canceled. I sold a pilot. Right, I guess right as numbers was getting canceled, I sold a pilot to the CW through my Paramount slash CBS deal that was set in Thailand. And I went to Thailand. I directed directed the pilot, and it didn't go. And then they called me up and they said, hey, you know, this pilot is going and we'd like you to run the show. And I met with the creators. I Well, I met with, um, what's his name, Leonard Goldberg, who had done Starsky and Hutch and Vegas. I, I don't know if he'd done Vegas, but he'd done a lot of those, a lot of those shows that I'd grown up on, you know, those cop shows. And, and we got along okay. And then I met with the creators who thought they were running the show. And that was this kind of awkward conversation. I walked out and said, I called CBS and said, they think they're running the show and I don't want to be, you know, that guy who's kind of, you know, an unwelcome boss. But then some shit happened, I guess, and conversations bounced around and the creators called me and said, well, they're not going to let us run the show. So, you know, if it's going to be someone, it might as well be you. And with that, with that ringing endorsement, I went to work, but it was, you know, it was a life lesson in, you know, I talked myself into taking the job and I knew I didn't really like the show and I I didn't <laughs> like a lot of people involved with it, including Tom Selleck. And when you're really unhappy doing something, it comes out pretty quickly. So I was gone within six episodes. You know, I I kind of mapped out the season and and then, you know, uh, I mean, without going into the gory details, you know, Tom Selleck is a person who's kind of politically and tempor temperamentally aligned in a different way than I am. And, and uh it kind of came to a head over over a good script and and you know we had a tantrum and I called CBS and said this is what happened uh, I'm not walking out but you probably ought to find someone who will get along with him and I guess it took them a couple of years they you know they finally did find someone. Hey, let me hear, hear, hear your philosophy on this one. So, so Tom Selleck, you know, what, what he had a tantrum. Now, do you feel like? You know, because I've always wondered this: if, if he was, if he wasn't Tom Selleck, let's just say he was Joe Smith, and he didn't have the career he had, do you think that same guy would be having the tantrum, or do you think because he had such success in his life, and now he's you know the big player on Blue Bloods, that something happens to some people's heads where they become so big, it's like the the king, and uh, you know don't don't upset the apple cart. Well, I definitely think. I mean, you know, it's CBS. There were a bunch of shows like that. I don't know what it's like now, but there were a lot of these shows that were that were led by actors who had at some point thought they were going to become movie stars 
and then had to resign themselves back to being TV stars. And I didn't hear good stories about very, very many of them. But yeah, you know, I mean, I think the 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 metric of power in Hollywood is always the person with the most power is the person who's the hardest to replace. So <laughs> if your show is based on Tom Selleck, he's the hardest person to replace, followed by the right, you know, the showrunner, followed by blah, 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 blah. But so it's the same in reverse in movies. The reason writers are arguably more powerful in, in TV than directors and vice versa in movies is because you replace the director every week. No big fucking deal. I mean, when I'm running a show, honestly, I think the cinematographer is more indispensable than the than the direct the weekly directors usually, uh, because that's the person setting setting the look, you know, and setting setting the tone. And then, you know, obviously, in a feature, a director is is more indispensable, but always underneath the star. You know, I I think I heard that George Clooney once said that you know it's uh, when he's on a set he's conferring power to the director, which I think is what, what smart actors do. You know, smart actors work with directors that they trust or whose sensibility they want to sign on to, and then they confer power to them. But the power is always with the, you know, with the person who's making the thing happen. And that's usually, you know, a Tom Selleck or, you know, I've worked with other big stars, none of whom I dislike that much, you know, some of whom, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I also had conflicts with, but usually, you know, it was a negotiable conflict. I think, I think at the end of the day, most people that I've worked with, we've come to sort of a place where the actor trusted that, that I was at least looking out for them and that I was looking out for the interest of the show and, or the movie. Uh, with Selleck, you know, Selleck wanted to do what Selleck wanted to do. And, and, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, that shows us still on, I don't know who the fuck watches it, but <laughs> he knows his audience. He knows how he's going to stay on TV. No, he was right. You know, I mean, I was sent there. I was really, I was sent there by CBS to make, you know, what happened was I, I, <laughs> I got called in, I got flown into to LA to meet with the people at CBS and Paramount who I'd work with a bunch of other times. And, you know, this was when I took over the show and I said, you know, we'd seen the pilot, seen the pilot. And I said, you know, the pilot is that the show you want to make. And they all went, I guess it's podcast. They all just silently shook their head. And I said, so the show you want to make and you know, we, we kind of got down to what is the show you want to put on? And I knew what kind of show they wanted to put on because I've been working there, putting their shit on the air. So, you know, it just, uh, that wasn't what Tom wanted, and and ultimately they 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 eventually just gave Tom the show he wanted after trying to make it you know the kind of show that all their other shows are. But here's what I'm asking. Uh, so you know you you mentioned the word tantrum, you know, and there's that expression, Ken, and I know you live by this. And we haven't talked to each other in years, but I I, I got to know you very well. You know, don't forget where you came from. Yeah. So do you think like a guy like George Clooney would have a tantrum? I don't think so. No, no. I mean, I, I mean, I think, I think it's, you know, it's certain people, I think with Tom, I mean, I, I don't want to turn this into a big Tom self. No, no, no. <laughs> but you know, the first time you meet him, he tells you how he was supposed to be Indiana Jones. You know, like I think yeah. his whole mental metric is if only I had been Indiana Jones, I would have been right. Harrison Ford, not 
Steven Spielberg thanks God every day that you weren't Indiana Jones. <laughs> you know, uh, and so and so I think that you know whatever you know whatever his shit is, whatever ego he's wound up in. You know, I came to conflict with him over over a script because he had a very uh, racial point of view on on what a terrorist was and an ethnic point of view on what a terrorist was. And we had a script that was really interesting. I didn't write it, but it was, you know, it, it was challenging to that. And and so at the end of the day, you know, he wanted to wrap up a show in whatever kind of conservative worldview he has that uh, that, you know, I don't. I think, I mean, all actors are different and all actors, you know, everyone has bad days. I've had tantrums as a director, you know, I mean, and then you get over them and you apologize or, you know, I guess if you feel like you don't have to, you don't. So, Did it bum you out to like, you know, have to leave such a, you know, kind of famous show or, you know, iconic, you know, you know, depend whatever, regardless of, you know, if you watch it, you know, kind of it, iconic it wasn't former cop. It wasn't, well, it wasn't famous or iconic when I left. It was just starting. You know, I mean, sure, would I like the Blue Blood money, I guess, but I hated going to work so much every day on that show. I mean, more than wow. than any other job I've had that, yeah, no, I mean, I was, I was kind of, I was thankful that he gave me the out that he gave me, you know, that he gave me a reason to leave. I, I mean, God bless, God bless the people making a living, you know, and that show is, done well for a lot of people, employed a lot of actors and writers and stuff. And, and that's great. But that was where I started to take a turn away from, I had like one more deal away from not being filthy rich, but having enough money to no longer make things that I wouldn't watch. And that was something where there was nothing about that show as we were making it, even if we had made the version of it CBS wanted that I thought might be okay. It was just never a show that I would have turned on and watched. So, so no, yeah, it doesn't, no, that doesn't bum me out. Hey, it's Brian. I'm dropping in on an important announcement. What you need to know is you have more control over your career than you think. The thing standing between you and the career you want is your connections. And that's where one-on-one -on -one Next Level comes in. If you are not a member yet, you can apply to join at oneononnextlevel.com. Press pause and do that now. If you are already a member and you are ready to get back on track, we want to invite you to book a strategy session with us led by myself personally. We will help you prioritize which classes make the most sense given your career goals. You can find these under the resource hub in your account portal. We can't wait to hear your success story. Ken, there's certain people that you just know they never forget where they came from. Do you remember that night at the bar when uh, Tom Cruise trained? Oh, no, I wasn't there. I heard about okay. it. I so there. I was there. And you know what? He, I got to say, Tom Cruise, class act. Yeah. That guy, class act. I mean, my experience has been the more truly successful an actor becomes, usually the more generous they are. And, and the actors I've had the most problems with have been the ones who, who are acting the way that they felt a successful actor should behave and not the way most success. I mean- I just did a movie, uh, I guess it's like three years ago now, with Nick Cage, you know, and Nick Cage is an icon. You know, he go, you know, he, he goes beyond just successful. He's a guy who you say it, and I don't care how old or young you are, you know who Nick Cage is, and could not have been a more professional, you know, more generous guy on set, not just with me, but with other actors, you know, 
just patient, prepared, nothing about him that was ever kind of angry or bitter. And, you know, we were doing a small movie and he never made me feel like, oh, well, this is a movie I'm doing as a favor or as a money job. You know, he came there and just was all in to do it. And I think that's, you know, the best artists, you know, just kind of go all in on, on making it no matter what. And I think that's such an important point because most of our listeners, I mean, our community is mostly actors. And it's so we say it all the time. In a, in a way, it's a small industry and your rep- reputation follows you. Yeah. And if you're difficult to work with, people people talk and they don't want to work with you. <laughs> oh, it, it it gets around very fast. And, and the truth is that I think a lot of times, even in auditions, you can tell you know, who's going to be fun to work with and who's not going to be fun to work with right away. Oh, really? You know, and, and uh, oh, yeah. I mean. Can you elaborate on that? Like, like how, how can you tell? Uh, you know, I mean, first of all, I, I mean, I think that, that uh, I mean, I, I watched this a lot in TV where directors would just have people come in, read and send them back out. And that was inconceivable to me. And even as a showrunner sitting in on, adi- and in on auditions, I would often you know, I would do the adjustment if the director didn't, just because I think that you're not just auditioning an actor's take on something and what they look like and how they sound, but how they respond, you know, what kind of vocabulary you have with them. How they respond to those adjustments kind of tells you whether there's someone who wants to play or there's someone who wants to come in and kind of protect protect an ego or, you know, fe- put a fence around their part of the work. I can usually tell, you know, uh, you know, some actors come in and you just know right away from giving them an adjustment and the way that they respond to getting direction that it's going to be a life's too short, you know, before you even get to all the other shit, you know. And then quite frankly, and you know, this may be the writer in me, but actors who come in and have already rewritten the script, they're fucked. They're fucked on the outside. Nobody ever says, oh boy, I'm really thankful to that actor for for coming in and telling me everything that's wrong with the script before they get the job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's interesting, Ken, because you know what? There was a director years ago I was friendly with. His name is Gary Winnick. Oh, sure. He taught it one-on-one. And he always said, you know, a lot of times the actor, I don't want to say makes the mistake, but he says, you know, like uh, can misinterpret. They come in and they feel like they look at the director. This is before they get the job. Like The director has all the answers. And he says, as me as a director, meaning Gary as a director, he goes, when an actor comes into like the callback room and I, and I'm, I'm actually looking for the actor to sometimes, even though I created the character and wrote it, I'm looking for the actor to, to maybe show me something I didn't see when I was writing it. And a lot of times I've cast actors who like teach me the way the character comes to life. Oh, but that's something that's completely different. You know, that's a, that's an actor looking at a page and saying, Hey, I want to go at it from this direction. There's a difference between, interpreting, you know, interpreting a part when an actor comes in and rewriting the script. I mean, I've just, I remember having a, I think it was the first pilot I, I wrote and it was for, it was for Fox. So, you know, it's a network show and we had this guy come in and he put fuck in every single fucking line, thought that that would make it sound edgy. And I was like, okay, you know, that, that's whatever gambit that is you're going for. I get it. But then we asked him, okay, you know, please let's, let's go again. You know, here's an adjustment or two and please, you know, stay on the script, you know, don't, don't go with the fucks. And he does the fucks all over again. Now, you know, maybe that's hardwired into him, but it's like right away, 
that tells me that that actor isn't interested in hearing what you have to say about about what you need from the scene. Um, but that's not the same thing. I mean, you know, especially especially with the indie movies that I've directed, I'm desperate for actors to come in and be smarter than what I've written. I'm desperate for them to come in and and just attack the character from a way that, that I didn't write it. But that's different from changing the script. Can you give one story to share with our actors, like when that happened, how it happened? God, I mean, it happens all the time. But on the last movie, actually, I uh, we were casting, you know, we were casting, uh, uh, there's a character named Oso who's like the kind of this big goon who works for this woman who's uh, like a gangster. And he ends up in this scene with with Nick that's sort of, you know, pregnant with violence. And it's uh, it's about, you know, the two of them swinging dicks with each other. And it was totally written for sort of that big, beefy, you know, older, older guy, you know, is the total cliche of that character. And then we were reading for a bunch of other parts. And this is in Colombia. So we're casting Colombians who can speak English. And, you know, that that's this kind of, you know. It's a larger pool on the second movie I shot in Colombia than the first. But but so this young guy came in and he read for another part, a smaller part. And I just kind of liked his look. And I said, I, I you know, kind of sent him out with the with the script for, for Oso, for the bear. And I said, you know, just just see what you do with it. You know, don't you know, don't read what it is. You know, don't read the, you know, the the description. Come back with it. And he was this young guy with with braids and braces and kind of sweet and scary at the same time, completely different character. I mean, he ended up, you know, he ended up getting the part. You know, he just walked away with it just for coming in for one thing. And, and then and then. Well, so I guess that isn't really a good example of what you're talking about, though. No, but it's, it's, it's something. How about one more thing? This is good. Your brain's I'm working. trying to think. I'm trying to think because I know we've even. Oh, well, you know, and then in the first thing I did in Colombia, we actually, we, although there was a part that was written for a guy, it was like these two guys in a bar who are gunfighters. It's all about underground gunfighting in, in South America. This woman came in for another part and I ended up, I liked her so much that I, but I, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't right for the other part that we ended up casting her. We flipped, we flipped the sex of the second, the second character Wow. And, and made her the gunfighter. And that was all just, you know, kind of her bringing, bringing something in that, that worked. I, you know, <laughs> I still think I'm not answering your question. No, no, but... no, no. Hey, folks, Brian here. Mark and I often cringe when people call one-on-one -on -one Next Level a workshop studio because we are so much more than that. You and I both know that not all workshop studios are the same, and I can tell you with complete confidence that no other studio offers the same level of care or programming that we do, and we do so with pride. Here's just a few examples. I'm Emily, and before one-on-one -on -one Next Level, I was in a super dark place in my career. I tried a lot of things to find representation, but nothing seemed to work and I felt invisible. Then almost as a Hail Mary, I signed up for a manager session. It was incredible, but it was also the thing to land me a manager. Since then, I booked a national commercial, I've gone on to create a thriving voiceover career and signed with an agent, all through these classes and programs. One-on-one -on -one Next Level has been the single most important thing that's influenced my acting career and life in so many ways. I'm Neil. In the last year, I booked two co-stars and one top-of-show guest star on major TV series. 
I also shot my first lead in a feature film. In fact, I've hit 20 big milestones thanks to the connections that I've made in classes at one-on-one -on -one next level. The key has been getting in front of casting directors, and that's why I love one-on-one -on -one next level. If you're not a member yet, what are you waiting for? Every actor deserves face time with the people in the business who can move your career forward, and one-on-one -on -one next level can help you do that. Did you know one-on-one -on -one next level produces over 335 events and classes each month? Whether you join us in person or attend on Zoom, you can meet with A-list casting directors, filmmakers, TV showrunners, and executive producers, as well as agents and managers when you become a member. These days, it's harder and harder to get real face time with industry pros, but one-on-one -on -one next level makes it possible. To become a member, visit www.oneononenextlevel.com and click join. We can't wait to hear your success story. Ken, you know, you know what is incredible? Like when we connected for this, you were telling me there was a project that you had with uh, Sylvester Stallone was behind it. Oh yeah, and then yeah. It, and then it it didn't happen. And you know you you hand you know you were just like uh, all right, it didn't happen. I was going to ask you because I know you're you know from from the time going way back the time this started, and this is really helpful to our audience. You know, there's so many things that happen in life where you know you get rejection. Now it, it happens today, and you're like used to it. But back then. You know, you're like the Everetti battery. You always have hung in there and continued to write and, you know, worked your way to the level of today. What would you say is like uh, the thing that like made you do, like, how did you continue? Did you have any stories where you almost gave up because you, you couldn't handle rejection or were you, were you always good at handling rejection? I guess by the time I really understood how much rejection there is in the business, I was already in the business and kind of, <laughs> kind of committed to it. But yeah, I mean, I had, there was a year and a half where I just, nothing sold, you know, nothing worked. I mean, I think the thing that's different with a writer is you just go out and keep on trying to make your own work. You know, you you can write during those dead periods. You're not completely at the mercy of someone else hiring you. You have to go and sell the shit once you do it. On the other hand, it's very much like being an actor in that most of the time it is just waking up and saying, okay, I'm going to beat my head against the wall again, make something happen. And I think I think if it's your living, you know, I mean, you know, when I was a cop, it's, you know, writing was easy because it, I don't think I ever really thought I was going to sell anything. You know, it was always like buying a lottery ticket, you know, it was like, well, it'd be fun to imagine this going somewhere, but I have a job, you know, and probably this is, you know, my path through life. So it was easy to write because it was a release. Then when it became a living, you know, I mean, it, uh, it was great in that it was a living, and then in some ways it's harder because it isn't it isn't the pure pleasure of art anymore. You know, it becomes the calculus of okay, what I really want to write isn't going to sell. So, you know, I'll, I'll allow myself a couple of weeks to to write it, but then I have to get back to you know writing shit that will sell, or you know, trying to get on the show, you know, and, and stuff like that. And uh, I think in some ways, you know, you have to have those frustrations to really force yourself to reassert the part of you that is that is committed to making art and not just making a living. What I will say, and this is actually kind of pertinent to, to your audience, especially when I was doing numbers, you know, uh, we had a casting director who would bring in way too many people for every part. I mean, for the smallest part, he would bring in five, eight people. You know, he would give you every shape and size and, you know, like, uh, and a lot of times it was on me because I wouldn't say, you know, give me a person who fits exactly this box. I'd say, 
here's a really big box, you know, give me some interesting ideas, you know, and takes on, you know, who could be that character. And so there were actors who he would bring in time and time again because he really liked them. He really believed in those actors. You know, especially in TV, there's a weird politics that happens where, you know, uh, on numbers, it would be the writer would like someone, the director would like someone, I would like someone. And we'd end up nine times out of 10 comp compromising on everybody's second choice. You know, it wouldn't be anyone's favorite. It would be everyone's. Yeah, I like them, too. As you're doing it, you're building a catalog in your head of people who are really interesting or really good. And even sometimes people who are completely wrong for the part you brought them in for, but you just know that they're good. You know there's something interesting about them. And you tell the casting director, you know, keep throwing that person at me. You know, keep throwing that person at me because we're going to find something for them. And so I would say that, you know, in the audition process is that you're not just auditioning for the part. You're auditioning for the casting director and for the five people in the room who look completely disinterested. And hopefully two of them are worth the shit and are at least making a mental note of you and saying, yeah, you know, I, I didn't think they were right for this or I lost that argument this time, but, you know, bring them in again. And, you know, I mean, on numbers, I'd sit there as the showrunner and I would defer sometimes to the director or the writer of that episode. But then I wrote and directed a lot of episodes. And so I say, you know, bring that person back for me. I want that person. And why is it so often in these, you know, callbacks or producer sessions do the writers, directors, showrunners show look so disinterested or sometimes angry? Is it is it like some of them aren't invested in the audition process? This is in the callback room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is it yeah. that they're, like a lot of stuff is going on and they're just angry from the day? It depends. I'd say some of the, you know, some people are awful in the casting room. You know, I mean, probably it's a godsend to go on tape for a lot of, a lot of the people that you're auditioning for because, because, you know, they're really, they're really shitty and, and graceless in the room. Why? And Why would you say that is? Because, you know, you would think, like you said, one a long time ago, Ken Sanzel dreamed of being in that position that you're, you're not that, that guy, but why would someone who one day dreamed of being in his position would be awful in the room? But the, but you're right. Okay, well, so for a TV director, that TV director is is booking, you know, five jobs, six jobs a year. So in their head, they just want to get through every job faster. So that director may be pissed off that I'm giving adjustments to the actors that they know they don't like already. The writer, you know, I mean, the younger writers tend to be really engaged. An older writer just might be an entitled asshole who has forgotten where he came from. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, or may not be as invested, you know, because they know they're not going to be directing down the line or they know that I might override them or they know that I may defer to the director. And so for them, it's just, you know, it can become very grueling, you know, to sit in three or four hours of casting. And then, you know, candidly, you get a lot of bad auditions. And so, you know, it gets rough when you when you sit there and listen to stuff being done badly. It, it, explain yourself. When you see a bad audition in your head, what are some words that come out into play without thinking? Oh, uh, well, uh, in, in, in L.A., it was the CSI audition. It was people that came in and read it the way you'd seen it on CSI. In New York, it was the Law & Order audition. No matter what was on the script, they had done so many Law & Order auditions that 
they read it like a law and order, you know, they read it at the law and order tempo. And, you know, and, and look, I would try to break them out of it because I wanted to see what they actually could do or what, you know, what they had to offer. But if you're a director who's, you know, sitting through tons of auditions and then sometimes, you know, honestly, sometimes it's favors, you know, uh, we had, uh, an actor, uh, on numbers. I remember specifically, we had an actor's doctor who got brought in audition after audition. It was the favorite of the actor to get the audition. You know, eventually we had to give him a part really just because it was cruel to the guy, you know, that he kept on coming in, but he was terrible, you know, but you get those favors and those people, you know, sometimes those people just can't fucking act. Or sometimes the casting director at the beginning, I find at the beginning of the process, the casting director, before they know your taste and appetites, can be very, uh, you know, they can bring you all different kinds of things that work for them in, in different scenarios. And it takes a while for them to to dial in on your head and and your rhythm and your sense of, okay, this is what people sound like saying dialogue in my world. And I think that's probably why people like to work with the same casting directors over and over again, is you develop a shorthand, you know, with them about, about, okay, I know, I know what Ken hears. I know that person's going to come in way too emotive and Ken like something that's, you know, more, uh, wry and detached, you know, something like that. So, so a bad audition can be a lot of things. Um, sometimes it's just super self-indulgent, you know, sometimes it's people who come in and just, you know, like, they figure the way to, you know, break out of the pack is to is to just go completely off of what the script is and do something wild and crazy. And and again, that's OK if then you give them an adjustment and they come back to, you know, to what you're doing. But, you know, if they're fuck you, no, this is this is it. Or sometimes you give an adjustment and an actor will argue with you about the adjustment, which arguing with me about the adjustment on the day or in rehearsal, you know, that's a conversation. Arguing with me before you get a job, it's like, you know, it's like, do you walk into Burger King and say, but no, you should be making fish, you know? Uh, and no, I, I'm only going to show you how good I am at making fish, you know? I mean... It's a red flag, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 like, yeah, and you know what? I know it's Burger King. You know, I, I know that what I'm making is Burger King, but we all got to go and say, how are we going to make the most palatable burger? We can't all bemoan the fact that we're not making fish, you know? So, so I think that that sometimes happens, uh, with bad auditions, but you know, everyone's, everyone's different. You know, I, before I directed my first movie, I took a, an acting for directors class down at the new school. I realized how bad, not only how bad I was at acting, but how hard it was for me to release myself into characters. And as a result, I love actors. You know, I love working with actors. I, I don't understand how they get where they're going, but I love getting there with them and playing with them. It's kind of like I actor. I always say uh, show running is directing without the fun parts because the fun parts are playing with cameras and playing with actors. And I love playing with cameras and playing with actors, even though I don't know how to be a DP and I don't know how to be an actor, you know, playing with, those people who bring skills that that are magic to me, that's alchemy to me. I love it, but but I think that you can still walk into a room where it's hour seven and people are exhausted, but also know that those people are dying. You know, they're not there rooting against you giving a good audition. 
you know, especially hour seven, it's like, you just want someone to come in and take the part. You know, you want someone to come in and do something that you go, holy fucking Jesus, that is, you know, that's not what I thought it was going to be. The first movie I did, I remember uh, uh, we had like a team of five rogue cops. The woman I had written, I can't remember specifically how I wrote it, but I wrote her kind of one way. And Dana Eskelson came in and and read the part like like she almost had like a stand-up comedian's chops or, you know, like a like an improv way about her that wasn't the tough cop way that every other actress had come in playing it. And it was like it was so exciting because I was beginning to think I had written a bad part. You know, I had I had written the part wrong, and I might have written the part wrong, but Dana came in and made it brilliant. You know, you know, and, and, you know, that's your dream every step of the way is that people are going to come in and make you look good, you know, make you look better than you are. So, so people are rooting for you, you know, uh, in casting or the, the smart people are, and then, you know, then they're assholes like everywhere else. <laughs> for you, does it start like when you, when the actor first starts coming in the room or do you, do you, do you kind of like, uh, start your judging hats when they start getting into the the words, or do you know, do you notice for yourself the way you were commenting before about a when when someone has something that when they come into the room, do you feel like, uh, hey, that guy could be the character? No, I mean for me, usually it's the adjustment. Okay, you know, sometimes they come in and off the bat they do something that you go, fuck, that's awesome, or wow, there's something there. Can can you give me one thing that they do that you go like, wow, that's awesome? Uh, it depends on the part, you know. I mean, it, it's 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 just how they read the part usually. It's a manner, you know, it's a little, for me, it's, it's usually a little thing that's going, I like to say there, it's what's going on behind the eyes, you know, like it's not, it's not how they're delivering the lines themselves. It's what I feel like they're processing, you know, of these, you know, two sheets of paper they've been handed an hour before they've walked in. There's usually something that's processing, but what really, what really gets me excited about an actor is when you give them the adjustment. And whatever the conversation is between the two of you, and usually I've given by that, you know, by by the seventh or eighth person reading, you know, for a part, I've kind of dialed in my adjustment to what I'm like, okay, you know, here's the shape of the scene. You want to come in angry, and then this guy charms you, and, you know, you, you get kind of lulled into a false sense of security, and then at the end of it, you realize, oh, fuck, he's, he's snookered me, and, you know, he stabs me in the chest, Usually someone ends up shot or stabbed in one of my <laughs> movies. But, uh, but so, you know, you have that shape. And then when you start talking to, you know, you're you're using the actors a lot of times to kind of work through your sense of the scene, especially when you're directing as well. But then when you give that adjustment and you see them really kind of taking what you're giving them and figuring out what they're going to do with it, that's when I get hopeful. You know, because a lot of times I'd say, I'd say probably... 75% of the time you give an adjustment and you get a feeling like they're just like, okay, he wants it faster or, you know, okay, he wants it quieter or they're looking for that shortcut and then they're just going to do it. They're not, they're not really listening to you, you know, or they're not really listening to you and putting it back into what's there. And I know it's tough, you know, because, uh, you know, especially in TV, it's like you're getting, you know, bereaved widow coming in and crying about how wonderful her husband was. And, you know, it's a bullshit part. But if someone gives you something to latch on to in that bullshit part, 
the lifeline, how how actors respond to being handed that lifeline of, you know, here's how to make it something or here's what I'm hoping you can make out of it. You know, that's when you get excited, at least for me. You know, it's it's when that's such a good you, point. you feel like the actor's gonna gonna play, you know, gonna do something with you. It's about the adjustment and it's about how they take it in. And even if it's like, yeah. you know, a typical procedural, don't phone it in, like, you know, make it special somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and sometimes, you know, the question they ask back, if you just say, look, you know, this character is way more anxious, you know, like that was cool how you came in and played it laid back. But I want to see, you know, I want to see urgency. I want to see you figure out you're in trouble here. And then for them sometimes to come back and say, there's two different ways that, that you can respond to that. You know, you can say, you can say, well, you know, but on the page it says that he's, he's laid back, you know, it's like, you know, they can, they can argue with you or they can say, should I come in laid back and get anxious? Should I come in anxious? You know, like how they process even the note tells you a lot. And then, you know, and then a lot of it is, you know, there's a chemistry that happens between a director and an actor, just like there is between actors. There's just, there's some actors that you talk to and it's like, wow, it's just we're talking in the, you know, in the same way or we're talking in an exciting way where something is going to come out of it, you know, where where something interesting will will emerge. Maybe not even the right thing, but something interesting. And then there are the actors who, like I said, you know, a lot of them for good reasons and bad come in kind of armored, you know, and, and so hyper prepared. This is what I'm going to do that I think, you know, at least for me. I'm never really looking for the actor to come in and give me the screen ready performance. Cause if they give me the screen ready performance, we're fucked, you know, cause it won't be as good on the day. You want them to come in and be an interesting, you know, inhabit the character in some interesting way, but also, you know, as a technician, as, as an artist to be working in the same language as you are. And, you know, and I'm one specific kind of guy, you know, there are directors who really just, they want to hear what you've got and they cast you based on what you're going to do. And, and, you know, sometimes in TV, especially, you know, if you're a day player, they want nothing more than for you to take care of your shit, show up, be coroner number two, say your two lines and, and not cause anyone any problem. I'm trying to remember who it was, who I was casting with. And it was a director and they were saying how it was the little parts that actually were the difference between a good movie and a bad movie. You know, that you're casting the big parts at a certain level or even, you know, you know, substantial parts at a certain level. And so every movie, you know, like the actors, you know, from this number of pages on up are, are going to be at a certain caliber. But it's the bartender who has four lines who you go, oh, fuck. And actually the bartender in that first movie was written as a, uh, was written, I can't remember how she was written, but it was like, it was tougher. And then this one actress came in who was a Broadway actress and not a you know big Broadway actress, but, you know, working Broadway actress. And they love doing these little things because they pay a lot more money than, than most of the shit that they're doing. And, and it's, you know, and this was a day, you know, this was a day and it was four or five lines. And there was just something about her that she came in and, and, and felt like a day player out of a 40s film noir. And I fucking loved it. it you know, it kind of realigned my sense of, of that scene. Having, you know, having those little, and, and, you know, her lines were not, I mean, there might have been one funny line. I don't even remember anymore. But 
it was basically, you know, functional lines to get you to Stephen Baldwin talking to someone, uh, talking to the bad guy or something. But just, you know, her inhabiting those lines like that takes the scene and makes it go from that low budget, low budget flat scene to something that's all the little detail of it has been managed. Those two lines are inhabited by a person and not just an actor getting you information and getting you to the next thing, which by the way is, you know, that law and order read that I can't stand. <laughs> it was very good for law and order, but yeah, I mean, you know, like, like not my thing. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done it yet, grab the backstage pass. Don't treat this podcast as mere background entertainment. The Backstage Pass offers exclusive resources and behind-the-scenes footage that empower you to make a real impact on your career. Music